this is episode 21 of the Michigan Real Estate Investor Network podcast, hashtag the network. We're coming to you from the network studios inside Michigan Investment Title. This episode is brought to you by Manzo Appraisals. Hey folks, we're back with another Michigan Real Estate Investor Network podcast. My name is Dylan Tanaka. I am here with my wonderful co-hosts, David Sobel and Erica Weichel. Hey Dylan, how you doing? Thanks for having us. Hey Dylan. Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening to all three of us. Um, I don't even know what time it is. So uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about, or a lot about, investing strategy. And before we get started, I guess I'll introduce myself really quickly because I forget to do that. So my name is Dylan Tanaka. I'm a full-time real estate investor. Um, I run a company called Hot Wholesale Deals. That's kind of my main function is wholesaling properties, but I've done it all. So today we're going to talk about three different ways to invest in real estate. Awesome. I'm Erica with Michigan Investment Title, and I'm excited to talk about these three. These are the three most common phone calls that we get and the most three, uh, the three most common types of investing that, that we deal with on a regular basis. And David? Right. I'm David Sobel. I'm a real estate attorney. I'm also a real estate investor. And um, yeah, I, I, let's get this going with three different ways to, three strategies to invest. Sounds good. So the main three um, are renting um, wholesale deals, which inc include the assignments and, um, oh, what, what did I already say, and, and fix and flips. So um, I think we were gonna, why don't we start with the rentals? That seems to be the, the easiest. So um, Dylan, do you wanna walk us through um, what would make a good rental and why um, that's a good fit for somebody? Sure. So the, the whole point of this specific podcast is because when you first get started in real estate investing, you've got to choose which way that you want to go. Even if you're advanced and, you, and you're deciding to kind of shift gears, you've always got to have that, that target because it's very hard to, to hit a, a moving target. So you want to have a stationary target to hit. Um, so it's important, again, uh, that, that when you decide which way that you're going to go, that you make a plan and understand all of the different facets. So today we're going to start with rental properties. This is usually the first way I think anyways, in my experience that people say when, when they want to get started in real estate investing, they talk about being a landlord because the average person thinks that a, a real estate investor is somebody who owns five, 10, 20 homes. They rent them out. Um, and then 30 years down the line, you become a millionaire because all your houses are paid off and the tenants pay them off and life is easy. Well, unfortunately, it's not quite that easy. There's a lot of different twists and turns to being a landlord, and we're going to break down some of those today. So I think um, before you even get started, though, and buy your first rental property, you want to talk to both a licensed attorney, a real estate attorney, and a CPA or tax preparer to talk about your personal situation because depending on where you are at financially, there are different ways that you should title the property and there's a lot of different tax advantages also to holding rental properties. So lucky for us, we have the esteemed real estate and finance attorney, David Sobel on with us today. So he's going to be able to explain a little bit about the importance of knowing how to title the properties and how to hold them. Right. I'll take esteemed. I like esteemed. Anyways, um, when it comes to, buying a property you you most likely individuals will will look at a property and say well gosh i should just be the landlord itself uh myself or 
uh, or should I put it in a company name? And the most frequent question that I get every, every week at least, and I'm sure Erica gets them and Dylan, uh, people talk to you about it as well. And that is, uh, should I incorporate, and if I incorporate, how many homes should I put in this uh, corporation? So the first thing that you wanna do is you do wanna establish an entity called an LLC. It's a limited liability corporation, or you can have an Inc or a corp. Uh, and so your company might be uh, Landlord Inc or Landlord LLC. There are two different types of entities. I would encourage new real estate investors to look at a limited liability company. And that basically is an entity in which you get the protection of a corporation in the state of Michigan. Uh, but you have the tax advantages of an individual. So you do that with, um, when it comes to the tax planning, you're going to want to consult with a CPA. But for legal purposes, you're going to want to put your first home, if you're going to be a landlord, under an LLC. And you form an LLC by, of course, filing your company with the state of Michigan. And you're also going to need to have an operating agreement that goes with that LLC. And, and that basically is the guidelines as to how your corporation works on a regular basis. But for a new investor, the most important reason why you have to have a limited liability company or any type of company um, is because you, you're going to have tenants. And tenants are really looking to, uh, most of them are looking to make a monthly payment to you. But there are going to be some that, you know, they're looking to sue you at some point in the transaction. Not everybody, I, I don't wanna be so cynical, that's kind of my nature, but when you are forming an LLC, the real reason why you have it is to protect against uh, yourself against the tenant for any liability, uh, both personal liability, damages, uh, any, anything related to legal liability uh, when it comes to holding this property, okay? That's why you have an LLC. How's that sound, Erica? Actually, that, that's perfect. And then as far as um, rental agreements go, because if you're going to do that, that needs to protect you um, with your landlord-tenant disputes, so paying water bills or maintaining the property. Right. So is that's, that something that, yeah, that for you to look over, correct? Sure. Uh, that's basically a lease. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, there's a standard. There's really no standard lease, but when you engage in being a landlord, you're gonna find that one or two types of leases will come into play on a regular basis. Um, number one, uh, you should consult with a real estate attorney to at least understand the first lease that you're going to, to hand over to your tenant. So before you do so, you need to understand what the laws are, what the provisions of the lease are. You really need to have a good understanding as what you are about to enter into. Um, my, my thought is to keep everything simple uh, when it comes to first starting out. Uh, the KISS method. So a lease shouldn't be really uh, too involved. However, there are so many things that can go wrong and they do go wrong when you're a landlord that you do have to protect against all those contingencies. And that's why uh, attorneys put these provisions in, in leases to protect the client, which is usually uh, the landlord in most, most situations. So yeah, you, you do need to sit down with somebody and review a lease. Uh, and, and you have to be familiar with the lease. Okay? Okay, but, and then... Oh, I'm sorry, right there. Oh, no, no, you're, you're fine. So, Dylan, with the rental, so what are the pros? What, what, why are rentals so attractive to investors? Well, the reason rentals are so in, in, um, 
are so attractive to investors is again there's there's multiple different reasons number one there's tax advantages number two you have a tenant who essentially pays your house off over all these years uh you're building wealth and you you're kind of doing it hands off now we all would be la should be laughing because we know there's no such thing as being a hands-off landlord but there's different ways to um to set up structures, there's management companies who actually will deal with the tenants, deal with the, the fix-ups, deal with the cities. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of new people don't know that. So that's a way to be a bit more passive. Um, and then really it's just, it's, to me it's time because in, in real estate, time can cure all. Because the biggest mistake you can ever make is overpaying because if you overpay in the beginning, it's really, really hard to come back. So if you own a home for a long, long time, hopefully it goes up in value and uh, what you owe on it goes down if you buy it with financing. So those are some of the bonuses. But um, I think that uh, being able to buy it on uh, being able to buy it with with bank financing is definitely a huge help uh, because it's really hard to wholesale or buy fix and flip with bank financing. We'll touch on both of those in a moment. But with rental properties specifically, you can buy them um, with bank financing. And another great tool is once you have um, so many rentals or once you get them so that they're in service and you can show that you have a good tenant and the, the rent has been paid for X amount of months or years, um, you can put uh, basically like commercial financing on there and you can lump three, four, five, six of those properties together and get your cash back out of them and then be able to use that again for, uh, to acquire other properties. So it's a lot harder to use bank financing for buy, fix, and flip, and for wholesale, nearly impossible. Um, so they also, um, rentals will make your balance sheet look really, really uh, attractive if you set it up the right way. And again, like David said, you wanna talk to a tax professional, be it a CPA or tax advisor, it depends on what, who you're comfortable with. But um, those are, to me, probably the big bonuses, number one, somebody pays the house off for you. Number two, they're not impossible to get into with bank financing. So in the beginning, it's easier for newer investors. And then number three, over time, the property goes up in value and what you owe goes down. So you are, uh, you know, you're growing equity and wealth. Well, to kind of make a segue between um, rentals and the fix and flip, Fix and flip, I do know some investors and they do it one of two ways. If they fix and flip and then they'll sell it for retail. And sometimes it depending on, on the location and if it's a big rental area, they will fix and flip, put a tenant in there and sell it turnkey to an investor that wants a rental property. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, are you talking about are you talking to me or David? Because we both have a lot of thoughts. Uh, <laughs> well, why don't we start with the benefits and then we can start, then we can go to David and, and talk about how these things should be set up. So you're saying the benefits of turnkey rentals? Turnkey rentals are, are one way that you can do a fix and flip, right? You can fix and flip and put a tenant in it and then sell it to an investor, or you can fix and flip and sell it for retail. Okay. Um, so we're talking about fix and flip. I'm confused. This is real. This is real. This is how, how video podcasts work, everybody. Okay. Sometimes you get screwed up and don't understand the question and I'm just being honest. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, so what are the, you're saying, what are the benefits of fixing and flipping versus renting? <laughs> My, I, I, you're, you broke up when you were speaking, so I wasn't sure what the question was. 
Oh, I was just saying that I have investors that do it both ways. They'll fix and flip it and then they'll put a tenant in there to be able to sell it or oh, they just okay. fix and flip and they sell it for retail purposes. Yeah, two, two 1,000% different strategies. So I myself have bought and sold a lot of properties, hundreds of properties. Um, I have never, I have never uh, really focused on buy, fix, fill, and flip. So that's what we call turnkey. So what you can do is um, that all falls in the fix and flip category. Some, some people out there um, are just looking, again, for totally passive uh, income. They could be out of state investors, out of country. They could be right here, uh, you know, right here in Metro Detroit. There's a lot of big three guys and gals who have high income and they want to diversify and they don't want to just be in equities or stock, um, stocks or bonds. Um, so they will buy real estate. So they look to someone like myself who will purchase a property that needs a lot of work or a little bit of work, fix it up, get it, uh, get it uh, to code, to rental certifications for that specific city put a tenant actually in there and then sell it like that. So, so that's a pretty advanced strategy. And um, you need not a, not just a, do you need to know what you're doing, but B, you have to have buyers lined up because um, I don't think it's the wisest thing to just jump into. So I think most buy, fix and flip investors are initially going to start buying an underpriced property because it needs a lot of work, putting the work in, creating value, then relisting it for top dollar. And um, I guess that's the, that's the simplest breakdown of buy, fix, and flip. The big difference between uh, a buy, fix, and flip and a rental is when you, when you buy it, fix it, and flip it, and you create a $30,000 profit, you're going to be taxed at full income. Um, and for those people who are in the higher tax bracket, they don't always like that. So, um, so the, the long-term holds sometimes make more sense for them. But again, that's a, that's a, uh, you know, a, a, an income tax, strategy that each uh, individual investor should talk to someone about before they make those decisions. Perfect. And uh, David, do you have some thoughts on that as well? On how, how you would set up a company to protect yourself that way? Would an LLC still work? Yeah, an LLC would still work. You know, the, the number one question I, I have when, when you have people who are, uh, leasing to more than just one, you know, they have more than one rental property, is how many homes should I put uh, in my LLC? So there's some investors, I mean, I hope that the people watching today, you get to a point that you have numerous properties, but if you're going to lease out all of them, some investors will put the property, each property will have its own LLC. Have you seen that, Erica? I'm sure you have, right? I, yep, and they'll actually name their LLC the yeah. address of the property. That's right. They'll call it like 20990 Potomac LLC, right? But the yep. thing is, is um, I, I think that, you know, that's when you have quite a few properties. It also creates a lot more paperwork and uh, costs more to manage uh, with your CPA. Not so much with your attorney, but you're going to pay every year. You're going to have to file an annual report. You have to do, um, you know, certain housekeeping items for LLCs every year. So if the more LLCs you have, the more involved it uh, and time consuming is going to be. My, my thought is um, to have different categories of properties or maybe regions of, of properties, put them under one LLC. So one of the things that I learned uh, very on in, in owning investment property, and I've, I know I've shared this with you guys before, is that you want to make sure that you are concentrated in a certain geographic region if you are 
being a landlord and you're renting out a bunch of properties, that's because the economies of scale, it's easier, let's say if you're an east sider here in Michigan, if you're on the east side of Detroit, you have all your properties on the east side of Detroit uh, as rentals. You don't want to have them scattered around. Um, but if you do, you might put all your east side properties in one LLC and your west side properties in another LLC. You could do that. Uh, for structuring, that's something I would encourage. But whatever you do, definitely have an LLC, no matter what you do. When it comes to, um, you know, I don't have, uh, I don't have the patience to be a landlord. I've shared that I know with Dylan on several occasions, and so I, my real estate investment uh, history comes from purchasing mortgages, and then I have people in the home left over after I have to do the foreclosure. So I don't love being a landlord uh, because perhaps maybe the people who are remaining in the home aren't the best payers. But if you're, if you're lucky to get a good tenant and who pays on time and there's longevity there, I mean, that's what I think when we talk about uh, the success of being a landlord, that's the sweet spot when you have a low maintenance tenant who pays on time. But how many people really have that, right? I can tell you not many because I'm busy every week dealing with default servicing, dealing with evictions, and other uh, issues related to uh, being a landlord of a home. Uh, I'll give you an example. Insurance, that's another area that becomes problematic, where you have, uh, the most recent one I had was a, a client um, who had a tenant who had a fire in the kitchen. You know, she left the, the pan on the, uh, on the stove for quite a while, and there was a fire. Well, you have to have insurance on your home because I can, I can share with you, most tenants never follow their lease requirements, which is they have to have insurance on the home. So you as a landlord have to make sure that you're insured, right? So when we're talking about structuring an LLC or structuring your landlord business, if you have multiple LLCs, because you put, let's say you have 10, you have 10 LLCs and each one, uh, each, each uh, LLC obviously, uh, you know, represents one of the properties that you own. You also then have to have 10 different insurance policies for each property. And that's a big pain in the butt. Now, if, if you have a, a management uh, company or if you have somebody in your office or you're very diligent, it's great. Here's the thing, it's a lot less uh, involved if you just have one company holding these 10 properties and you have one uh, insurance policy for all the properties in the LLC, right? So there, there's a whole different philosophy. People come in, all the time they say, oh no, each property I have to set up its own LLC. Other people say, no, you know what? I'm gonna put three in the LLC. What it is, is what's easiest for you. The KISS method is the best method, right? So long as you're complying with the law, the KISS method is the easiest method. You don't wanna be, you know, here's another one. I have people, and, and Erica, just interrupt me when you, you, you know, feel that I'm kind of going on a tangent, but, there are landlords that will say, I never collect a payment. I never have to go to my client or my tenant and pick up a check. Do you know why? I give them their own deposit account at the bank. I give them an account where they every month go and they write a check and put it in my account. Have you heard, heard of that, Erica? I have. Okay. You've heard of that. So um, now you have to set up 10 different accounts because sometimes – People will deposit with cash. 
right? They'll only take in cash and you have no idea who, you know, if you have 10 properties and you only have one account and you have 10 tenants going into the bank, guess what? You don't know who deposited what. You might think it's easy. You might have to get a video camera and see who's coming into the bank teller because I can assure you the one tenant that says, oh yeah, I made the deposit, it was 500 bucks. But what if you have 10 tenants who are all paying you $500? Okay, right. so you gotta keep everything simple. Do you set up a different account for each uh, tenant? Well, in today's day and age, why don't you just go online and have a pay system like PayPal or something where they pay through PayPal? There's so many different ways that you can collect money. There's so many different ways that you can set up a, a, a LLC and structure it. But the most important way that you need to set up your business as a landlord, whether it be the first or the 10th deal or the 20th, is to keep it as simple as possible, especially if you're just starting out. Don't make it more complicated than it really needs to be. Because it's gonna be complicated enough once you have a tenant in your property who's calling, right Dylan? Who's calling you to have, you know, uh, my plumbing doesn't work, my garbage disposal is not working, whatever it is. That's a whole other part of the business that you have to be involved with. Well, that's, yeah, no, that, that's really true. I mean, and Dylan, I'm sure you've had experience with that as well. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm one of the worst landlords in the universe, which is why uh, I don't hold properties right now. And if I ever do, I will have them with a management company or I'll just build my own management company because by the time you deal with all this baloney with tenants and toilets and, and fighting for rent and I mean, there were days a long time ago where I had to pick nickels up off of a, off of a sidewalk from my first tenant who would throw them down to me from a perch. So I'm not the landlord guy, that's for sure. It takes a special type of, it really does take a special type of person. And there are quite a few people out there who are very good at it. You know, they're very lucky uh, at it. But I, 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 I'm jaded because I deal with everybody's issues as a landlord on a regular basis. So, you know, from being, from my own experience, and then also from at least two to three deals a week where I'm dealing with issues and headaches for other clients, I, I'm, I pass, but I, I know there are quite a few people. You make your most money, right, Dylan, on the appreciation. That's really what you're doing. You're, sure, you're, you make money while you sleep. Right. It's a buy and hold, and then you're, you're letting other people pay your taxes for you and all the expenses and improvements. That's what it comes down to. And if you have that time, it's a great, it's a great business. I know quite – by the way, we, we should have somebody on um, – I don't know, Dylan, if you've ever dealt with Section 8 that much. I have. Uh, but there are people out there who are really good at dealing with Section 8 housing. And that's a, a whole different animal. But if you're looking to be a, a landlord and you're trying to get into the business, that's a great area to be involved with is Section 8 housing. It has its own headaches. But once you learn what the requirements are, guess what? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a kind of a great game. Yeah, Eric and I both know a landlord. We won't drop his name now, but he promised he'd do the show and uh, he absolutely 100% specializes in Section 8. And I don't know if he's got 30, 40, 50 homes. He might be over 100, but he is a significantly large landlord um, compared to most of us, you know, and the folks who are listening and watching. So he is going to come on here and drop some huge bombs um, 
because like David just alluded to being a, uh, being a section eight landlord can be a lot easier. So we'll, we'll break that down again on, on a future show for sure. Um, so listen, uh, this thing's going to shut us off. So I'm going to have to stop it and restart it. <laughs> really? We'll have to move. Yeah. We'll have to move on to wholesaling. They want us to pay. So you I've got a nerve. You're kidding me. <laughs> I've got to figure out something better than Skype. I, I talked, I, I didn't talk to, I listened to a couple guys who use that same software that, that we were using before, but they don't use Skype because Skype is cheap and crappy. Um, so for like a few bucks a month, there's some much better um, alternatives. What about webinar, Jim? We can use that, but I mean, I think, um, I don't know if it'll record at, at the higher, um, you know what I mean? At the higher, uh, whatever it's called. <sighs> so well, Dylan, I've had multiple people on, on webinar jam. You can get mm -hmm. six people up on yeah. webinar jam. Well, that, that thing will record right to my hard drive. That's the problem with this, oh. this stupid, what's it called? It's recording open air. You know what I mean? And it records way higher quality. This is just, you know, obviously they want you to pay, which how can we blame them? So, so I'm going to, you're going to reset I'll, it and then call I'll in. stop it. And, yeah. I'll stop it and we'll restart it. We'll see okay. if it works. So hold. Makes sense. Yipper. It's the way it goes. All right. So we don't need to re-intro or anything. We can just keep no, just, going. Yep. So we're All recording right. and I'll start right now. So anyways, yeah. So section eight, um, you know, it can be a huge benefit to landlords. Um, and like I said, we'll touch on that. We're going to do a whole show on that, but, um, I think Erica, you're moving us on to the next section. Yeah. So let's talk about some wholesaling. So this seems to be the most, um, most asked about the most requested for information about and how to go ahead and, and get started in wholesaling. I think a lot of people think that, um, they don't need money up front and which is true because you can do assignment contracts with wholesaling, but there's, um, seems like a lot of beginners really want to start here. So Dylan, uh, do you want to explain and define what wholesaling is? Sure. Uh, so wholesaling has about 20 different definitions, but I always talk about the, the main two that, uh, that, that I learned way back in the um, late nineties. So um, there's two ways to wholesale. You can find someone who is selling a property. You can get them to agree to your price on a purchase agreement. You can then sell that purchase agreement, which is the right to purchase that property at a specific price from that seller to another person who is, who's going to be an investor. And then they can actually close on the property. So that's called contract assignment. Back in the old days, that was the real way of wholesaling. Now, the other way that you can wholesale is you can buy it you can close on it and then you can sell it, resell it right away. You could sell it a month later. It doesn't matter. You could sell it a year later. But what a lot of other investors look at wholesaling is, is they're buying a property. They're going to do nothing to it at all and then resell it. So they might buy it, relist it on the open market and resell it immediately. So those are kind of the two, the two main definitions that, uh, that people go with. But there, you know, there's, there's a million different things in between. And then there's kind of a third stepbrother, we'll call it instead of stepsister, and that's wholetailing. And that came out during the foreclosure days. So what we would do way back then is we would buy a property, typically from the bank. 
it would be stinky and ugly and dark and cobwebs and all that crazy stuff. We would go in, tear out all the carpet, clean the whole thing up, get all the lights working, maybe get the toilets flushing, that kind of thing. Not bring it up to code necessarily. Just make it so when someone walked in, they didn't go, ugh, this thing's gross. And then we would immediately resell it. It doesn't mean that we put it on the open market. We would, we would just sell it off to other investors that way also, or sometimes homeowners who wanted to do a, a fix up and uh, maybe put a family member in there or um, live in it themselves also. Got it. And so what do you think is the best way to, to start looking to find a house to wholesale? I mean, that's, I, I don't think people understand how difficult that, that, that portion is. Yeah. So um, right out of the gate, whenever somebody goes to, uh, whenever a new person goes to these get rich quick seminars, the big nationwide ones that cost, you know, 30 and $50,000 for coaching and God bless them if they can get that money. They tell them right away, go to your local RIAs, you know, learn neighborhoods, talk to the other wholesalers there, figure out where they're wholesaling. You can do the same thing. So I would say the, the best advice that a, a new person um, who wants to learn how to wholesale could, should take is pick a, one specific area and learn it. For those of us who have full-time jobs, maybe it needs to be in an area close to home or close to work or close to where you travel often because you've got you've to learn, learn that quadrant, as I like to call it. And then once you figure out what the prices of the homes are going for, you have to just reverse engineer it and figure out what you would have to offer. Because um, if we just do simple math and say that a house is going to sell for 150000 and it needs $30,000 in work, and there's going to be about $10,000 in sales costs, now you're already down from one fifty down to one ten, And then the wholesaler wants to make some money on that deal, right? And then the person who's buying it, fixing it, and selling it needs to make a profit on that deal. So if that person wants to make 30,000 and the wholesaler wants to make 10,000, now you've got to take another 40,000 out of there. So you've got to find that property for 60 or $70,000 that's going to resell for 150. And I know David always says, that's crazy that, um, that wholesalers even are, are able to find those kind of deals a lot of times because you're, you need to buy something between you know 30 and 60 cents on the dollar depending on how much work it needs. So it takes, it takes a lot of digging to find that. And the only way to, um, to get started, of course, is to get started. But you need to be, um, I think you need to be a somewhat focused in a specific area so it's not so hard to, to get a grasp of what the values are and what properties are going for. David, did you have anything that you wanted to add into the, our wholesaling chat here? No, uh, you know what? I think Dylan did a great job. I'm always really surprised. You know, sometimes people come to the deals and, uh, you know, they'll show me a deal that I have to review uh, their wholesale agreement. And I'm like, how did you get this? Like Dylan said, like, uh, we were just talking about a deal, right, Dylan? Uh, yes. I think it was your deal. <laughs> Tell them about your deal. I think that's the best way people learn. Do you mind? Sure, sure. No, no, of course. Okay. So, um, so uh, I picked up a couple of properties, uh, both residential, uh, from one seller. He was going into foreclosure, and um, I happened to, to find him and, um, and pinpointed these properties as something that either I would buy, fix, and sell, buy, fix, and keep, or sell off to another investor. Um, so they, there was a lot of different exit strategies for me there. Again, something really important if you're going to be a wholesaler what are you going to do with the properties? Are you going to try to keep them or are you going to try to sell them? Well, as a wholesaler, you're supposed to sell them. So these specific properties I could have done all three with. Um, 
So I, I found someone who needed to sell fast. I was basically able to come in, as David likes to say, you have to be a surgeon in those situations because time was ticking and there was blood squirting from this guy's neck. So I had to come in and put a patch on it and stop that blood from happening. And, uh, it, you know, I, I laugh, but it's not funny because, you know, people get in situations that they shouldn't be in. And because this is what I do, this is what I specialize in, I was able to calm him down, get him to understand that I could help him. I could help take care of the situation. Uh, if we came to an agreement, take it over, figure out what to do with the properties, essentially get him off the hook with the city, other liabilities. Um, he actually, uh, in, in his personal life, had quite a bit of, um, had quite a bit of money. So he had properties with squatters. I mean, there's huge liability there. He didn't have the proper insurance on there. I mean, we could just keep going on and on and on. And, and you know, that's why having the three of us on this episode is great because we touch all different facets of the business. But, um, you know, you, you, you have to be able to go in and solve problems because if you can solve the problems for people as a wholesaler or any, any type of real estate investing, but really as a wholesaler, you have to be able to bring solutions because if you can bring a solution and you can help the seller out, calm them down, get them out of a situation that they don't want to be in, typically you're going to come out pretty good in the end. You know, I want to comment on that, Dylan, um, that, that whole fact pattern that you just set forth comes from experience. Like you were able to take care of that uh, seller's concerns quickly because of experience. But I want to share with you um, what I see as an attorney and a real estate professional when I deal with newer wholesalers and people new to the business. And that is the, that it is a stop, drop and roll mentality. It's very fast. And if you're not good at it, if you don't have the competency level and you haven't earned it yet, that deal is going to fall apart or you're going to trip up and you're going to find yourself in some legal hot water. So if, for example, if you make representations on a contract that you're going to do something for these people, then you better, you better make sure that you can handle whatever it is that you promise. The beauty about wholesaling, however, is uh, the contract is usually an, it's structured as an option, which we can get into quite a bit. And that is you are preserving the right to purchase the property while you go out and find somebody to buy the property. That's where that whole assignment clause comes in. That's the, the most common type of uh, agreement that you have with people is that you've generated an option, which is all a reservation of the right to purchase. Okay. There are some people out there who don't actually have a contract that talks about an option, they just say, I'm going to close this deal. I've had this. I'm going to close this deal on this date. Um, but if I don't close it by that date, I'm out. Now that works as an option. But what happens if the date comes and that closing has been scheduled? It depends on how the language is in your wholesale agreement. Are you obligated then to close? So most professionals that are doing wholesaling, they gather their documentation offline for, or from somebody at a RIA event, and they don't really read them. Uh, they only look at them after there's a problem. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm always, you know, crying, you know, the, the guy uh, who's, who's um, 
you know, got got the red flags constantly going, uh, you know, in front of in front of everybody. But I just see the mistakes that people make on a regular basis. So you better make sure that your lease, pardon me, your purchase agreement is actually an option, structured like an option. Am I correct, Dylan? Yes, you are, because uh, otherwise, um, I'm not sure if it's misrepresentation or what, what the proper legal term is, but um, if you don't have it, uh, if you don't have it spelled out in there, what your plans are, then a judge, um, God forbid you get in front of one, he could look at, at you as a real estate expert and you're taking advantage of someone. So again, you know, David and I, and, and Eric also, we talk about this all the time, it's pay me now, pay me later. You have to invest, a, you know, a few shekels into, uh, into your real estate contracts. Don't be cheap. Don't take the one that I have at RIA. You know, don't take the one that you get for free on Facebook because you never know what could get you in trouble. I've had sellers, like I said, who are extremely wealthy. And I mean, I mean, worth millions. And they've got a house in, you know, in North Detroit that if that thing burnt down and someone got hurt or, or this, a smart tenant knew what was going on, they could go after them for millions of dollars for some fifty or $60,000 home. You know, Dylan, that is so true the other day. And I want to get to you, Erica, with regards to these wholesale agreements. But I just want to chime in uh, with regards to I had a doctor last week call me and they have they, they are landlords on a home that they own. They bought the home for one of their employees. And, you know, thinking this was one of the fringe benefits that they were providing for, uh, let's say, their office manager. And the office manager stopped making the, the rent payments, et cetera. And now the, the doctors have to, it's two doctors, have to um, evict her. Here's the thing. No, actually, it's a land contract. They did it on a land contract. So, number one, the, the doctors purchased this property at a very low price. And now, and, and that was like 10 years ago. So now the property has like significant value. Number two, the office manager hasn't paid. So now they want to boot her out. She also works still at the, at the office. That's going to be kind of difficult to to uh, maneuver. Here's the thing. When they're talking to me about getting her out and forfeiting the land contract, which is just like evicting uh, a lease, a little bit more complicated, but not too much. Um, I, the first thing I said is, how do you hold title? And she says, oh, my, my colleague and I, we just hold it, hold it on our own. Like, are you crazy? You, you have got to have that in an LLC because the first thing that's going to yeah, happen- They're out of their mind. Right. You, you're, you're a doctor. It doesn't even matter. You don't have to be a doctor. Trust me. You can be anybody. Uh, one lawsuit can wipe you out. So if you're going to engage in any type of uh, transaction, whether it be wholesaling or being a landlord, definitely get your contracts reviewed. But getting back to the wholesale agreement, Erica, how many times do you have uh, that you can recall? I'm sure quite a few. I can see you smiling a little bit. Where people come in and you have the investor uh, who's wholesaling and you have the, the person who's selling, and they weren't aware of this whole transaction that's about to transpire. And now you have a third party that's come in, and they're purchasing the property. And now there's a bunch of confusion. How, how often does it happen to you that you have to sit and kind of smooth things over in a transaction because the wholesaler hasn't been forthright with, this, uh, with the seller or the, purchase that or the person that they're buying the home from? Does that happen often? It happens often enough that that we look for this and we um, 
we now, when we start working with a brand new investor, we kind of vet them. We ask them questions. We ask that to see their agreements up front. Um, that way we can help prepare and, and avoid those situations. Um, there's nothing worse than sitting at a closing table and the, the end buyer doesn't realize that the, uh, that, that the wholesaler said, oh yeah, we're going to pay all of the closing costs for you. But a lot of these end buyers aren't looking at that first purchase agreement to see what deal was actually worked out and the structure between the seller and the wholesaler. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely something that um, to try to avoid and we try to be proactive with it going forward. Right. Not every title company. And then um, I. Pardon me. Not every title company even deals with real estate investors in these type of deals, right? Am I correct? You are correct. I mean, there's a few of us that claim to be investor friendly. Um, 25 years for me, and um, you know, 13 years of dealing with investors um, as my primary focus of clients. So okay. um, we get familiar with that. My staff is very um, up on everything and knows how how to work with them now. Um, and I think that um, just kind of getting Wait, um, wanna, to the last section last, with um, Can you, guys oh, you want to talk about something else? Yeah, uh, it's my turn to talk. Yeah. Now. You guys got to talk for a long time. No, I'm kidding. So one thing I, I guess I want to go back to the elementary definition of wholesaling really quick and why people get involved in it. And the, the real beauty of wholesaling is as a new investor, you can basically make something out of nothing, right? You don't necessarily have to have a bunch of money. You don't necessarily have to have a bunch of knowledge. You have to be willing to work hard. You have to be willing to understand what, what the values are and understand who your buyers could be. But all three of us have talked to multiple people and we know other, um, other, other investors, even if they were newer, who've made a ton of money wholesaling and they didn't necessarily know what they were doing. So you have to be careful. You've got to make sure that your contracts are, are tight and, and make sure that they're right for you, right for your state right for the exact type of situation um, or transaction that you're trying to achieve. But um, there, there's one specific person I can think about. His first wholesale deal, he made $50,000 clear on it. And he'll probably never touch that again. But how awesome is that, you know, that, that somebody new can come into this business and make 50 grand on their first deal. It's kind of like winning the first time you go to Vegas. It might be the biggest curse that you could ever have, or it could be the biggest gift. Because for me, I did help this, help this you know, young gentleman out on his first deal, but it was awesome because it's something I get to brag about. I made not $1 on it, but to make 50000 on your first deal, having basically zero money in, invested, that's pretty amazing. There aren't many businesses that you can make that happen in. That's why real estate investing is so exciting all the time. <laughs> but uh, so just to kind of recap on our, our fix and flip discussion from earlier. Um, so if you, a lot of investors, they want to get in, they want, it's very um, HGTV, right? So they want to get in and you find a house and you fix it up and then you're going to sell it and make a nice profit. So how, how do we get started in that? I, I know Dylan and I have had a conversation about, you know, what you buy it for. I mean, that, that's really the, the very beginning. You want to make sure that, that you're not overpaying because that can, that can make your whole deal collapse. Do you want to go through that for us, Dylan? 
Sure. So I, we're only going to spend a few minutes on buy, fix, and flip. Um, we're going to do a whole full episode on it, talking about the HGTV and you know the the, the pluses and minuses to uh, to buy, fix, and flip. But I think the short definition again is uh, an investor is looking for a property property that needs uh, typically a, a lot of work, and that's how we get paid. We really create our profit from the work that's done. So instead of a homeowner buying a property and then putting X amount of dollars into it and managing contractors and having to understand what's in fashion with finishes and all the other crazy things that need to happen, we do that for them. We basically repair the house on speculation. You know, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they talked about the builders who would be spec builders. What that meant is they did all the work on speculation, hoping that someone was going to buy that home from them at full price. With all, the, uh, with all the finishes and all the different things that go along with the new home. So after, after that building boom, um, things changed, in, uh, especially here in Metro Detroit. So there were a lot of rehabbers, we used to call them. And uh, I just always call them buy, fix, and flip because people get that mistaken rehabbers of people do like rehabilitation for, for people. You know, it's a whole different, whole different business. Um, but I would get that all the time. So with buy, fix, and flip, Essentially, you're going to buy a property that needs a bunch of work. You're going to do the work to it. You're going to fix it up and sell it at tip, tip, top price, the highest possible price in the market. If you're only going to do a little bit of work and resell it, again, that was a wholesale. So for all intents and purposes, for, to me, the definition of buy, fix, and flip is making something absolutely beautiful, bringing it either to its former glory or today's uh, fashion standards, and then making it look like those houses on HDTV. The difference is... Um, it's a not whole drag to get there and it's not as easy as they do it on TV, but you can make some of the biggest profits if you do buy, fix and flip. Because again, if you have the wherewithal to get all those different repairs done and basically be that jack of all trades that the typical homeowner can't be or doesn't understand or doesn't want to be, then you're going to get paid, you know, a healthy sum because of that. And the other thing too, is most homeowners don't have all cash to buy something at a discount and then go through all of that work of all the repairs and then finally finishing the property and then maybe putting some debt on it. A lot of the homeowners nowadays, they don't want to touch a hammer and that's okay. So that's where we as real estate investors get to make our money. And again, they don't have the cash. So they get to come in with a mortgage again for that $150,000 price we talked about earlier. And the house is perfect. It's moving ready. They get to drop their bags, move in, and they don't have to do any work. And you know, that's what a lot of folks are looking for. So the buy, fix, and flip, that's, that's the solution to that problem. <laughs> yeah, hey, he caught me. I just actually was looking at an a old receipt, like a, a spreadsheet of some of the homes that I used to deal with, because this is something that I used to do, was to buy, I didn't really buy them. Again, I picked them up. Uh, they were mortgages, so I would own them uh, after the foreclosure if I had to foreclose on them, and we still had to fix them up. Now, that I just did uh, two deals last year uh, that were pretty significant. One was a buy, fix, and then we flipped it, and uh, I had partners on that. But the other one, we purchased it with the intent on fixing it, and then somebody came in uh, and wanted to buy it and do it on their own. That would be a flip. I, it was an unintentional flip, okay? Uh, so you never know what you're going to get, right, when you do a deal. Am I correct, Don? Absolutely. I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking at this one deal that 
what I bought it for and what we didn't even have two weeks go by when so, this is in Detroit. Somebody came to us and said, hey, did you start work on it yet? Would you be interested in selling it? So it was very, that was luck. That was luck. I would like to be the guy with the $50,000 wholesale. Deal. Listen, the, the harder you work, David, you know, the luckier you get. You are yeah. one of the hardest working men in business that I know, uh, whether in real estate, law, or, or any facet. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. In fact, we're all such busy people. We, we work very hard. I know, Erica, you're like going uh, constantly. How do we find time to do this, right? Because we want to impart, we find time because we want to impart the information to people before they engage on their own and get stuck, right? Yeah, well, and for me, I mean, the time that I set aside is to go to the networking meeting. So the, the RIAs um, and some of the others, I mean, and they've been great. They've been a great source of, of business and clientele for me, but it's also a great source of education and learning and hearing everybody else's stories, which I mean, some are, are you know, kind of inspiring. Almost makes me want to get back into my, my rentals again, but stick to title. It's it's easier and more profitable. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and you know, I, well, and, and I always like to say I'm, I'm good at my title job, so I'll I will I'll stick with that. Look how look how great I love, my ears got. What's that? <laughs> what did you say? I, I said, look how gray my hair has gotten. I've only been in real estate for twenty four months. I showed you a picture when we were offline. Did you see how much hair I had before I got into real estate? <laughs> I mean, my God, now I have, they can use me as a lighthouse. I'm a beacon with this forehead. <laughs> years ago, not even 10 years ago, I had more hair. No, I didn't. 20 years ago, I had more hair. But um, it's a good bit. You know what I love about being a, a, in my business um, is I do love, seeing the people who do come in i'd rather protect people than having uh up front you know the prophylactic the cautionary making sure everything's done right up front so that they can have a good experience but unfortunately a lot of people do come after they've kind of screwed things up and you should see some of the stuff i, I mean that part's kind of enjoyable not not to the dutch you know i'm not um i feel terrible but hey that's my business is to clean up after people's mess but i would rather uh, make sure that they're well protected before they even start the process. So I, I can tell you that the best thing uh, that I see is when we have a new investor. I deal with a lot of couples who are investing these days. They're 401ks, you know, uh, a lot of, you've seen them too, Eric, I'm sure. Uh, there are people who are trying to like get a second income, second job, and then to help them with that first deal and to see it go really smoothly and, and then they look at you and they go, they're like, you said this would be difficult or you said this was going to be hard. And I'm happy to report when they're done that it wasn't difficult, right? Because they did line everything up right. They had the right title people, they had the right realtor, the right attorney. So for me, that is where I find the most pleasure uh, in, in working. I, I do take, you know, a lot of satisfaction when I win at court as well. But the people, you know, my clients aren't happy because it usually costs money. Whether they win or lose, it's it's more expensive if they don't do it right the first time. So, uh, with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna beg out, guys. I gotta get going. I appreciate the time, um, Erica. Thank you very much for uh, kind of moderating today. That was really good. So thank okay. you. Yeah. It was nice. To, it was nice to chat with you too. This was a good topic for the three yeah. of us. You know, All right, so I, guys have a good, good night. Yeah, Dylan.
I just, I just want to end it with one thing because we always try to do the, you know, like the, the gold nuggets and the takeaways. So um, I think, yeah. um, I think when, when new investors are getting started and they need to figure out which type of investing they're going to do, they need to, again, look at their unique ability. What are you good at? What, what comes natural to you? Because if you're going to be a landlord and you've got a lot of time and you're very detail oriented, then you can create wealth over time. And it's a slower way. But again, like David said, or I said, you can make money while you're sleeping. Then you look at wholesaling. Wholesaling is where a lot of new people get in, but there's a lot of advanced people that are, that are still wholesaling also. And you can make gigantic profits without a lot of money up front. But you've got to have a lot of knowledge. You've got to have the buyers lined up and you have to understand values. And then third is the buy, fix, and flip. And to me, that's almost the easiest one to make money in because if you can find a property that's undervalued and that needs work, all you have to do is babysit it and contract all that work out, which is not very, very easy, but it's a lot easier than finding a deal like a wholesale to make $50,000 like, you know, like the young guy that we know that did that or to buy a rental and sit on it for 30 years and manage it. So buy, fix and flip sometimes can be the easiest way to make money in real estate investing. But again, I think, again, it comes down to your personal unique ability. So you have to look, you know, you have to look in the mirror and figure out what you're, what you're good at. And then I think that helps you laser line which type of investing and what box that you fall into, at least in the beginning. I agree. I, it's definitely um, a personality fit. You know, some people are great at landlording. Some people are, are more handy and can get in there and create their own value. Um, so yeah, it's up to it's up to you at you know how good you are at at different things and and go from there. So you know this is why you need to go to your your local um, networking meetings and talk to people and find out how that how they're doing it and if it's something that that you think you could do as well. All right, I guess I guess we'll sign off at that. And I just want to back up what Erica said. Make sure you're getting to every single RIA group that you can get to, every single real estate meetup here in Metro Detroit, because that's where you're going to meet people like us, like your next business partner, your next private lender. It is the only place that you will meet people as crazy as you are who want to be in real estate investing. <laughs> Very good. That's right. They're all crazy, Dylan. <laughs> we're listen. We're in the boat with them, David. Yeah. No, right. <laughs> Takes one to know one, right? <laughs> that it does, that it does. So I guess with that, we'll, uh, we'll let you go and uh, we'll be back again soon with another episode. We hope you found a lot of value in today's show. If there's anything we mentioned and you missed it, don't worry. We take all of the notes and you can find them at michiganreinetwork.com forward slash episodes. If you want to meet any of today's guests in person, you can usually find them at the hashtag the network meetup in Metro Detroit. You can find all about the network at www.michiganreinetwork.com. By the way, if you're new, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes of this show. This brings us to the end of another episode of Hashtag The Network Roundtable Podcast. And as always, share the love.